are listening to Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. Welcome to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show, a weekly radio program that spotlights positive real estate development and neighborhood revitalization throughout Philadelphia. I'm your host, Derek Hengamil. Jumpstart Philly is a unique community development program that trains, mentors, networks, and provides funding to aspiring real estate developers in seven different Philadelphia neighborhoods, including Germantown, where the program was founded. Jumpstart believes that you can do well by doing good and focuses on removing neighborhood blight, scattered site rehab, creating a healthy mix of affordable and market rate housing, and avoiding gentrification through slow, steady growth and keeping wealth local. Interviews are conducted during Jumpstart Germantown's weekly Jump in Our series on Monday nights at 7 p.m. held via Zoom webinar. For more information about these events, check out the events page at jumpstartgermantown.com events. This week, I'm having a discussion with Rodney Ross, who is one of the partners behind the Osage Pine Project, which focused on the redevelopment and revitalization of 36 row homes that were involved in the 1985 move bombing in West Philly. This case study serves as our introduction to larger, more complex development, and I hope you enjoy it. Be sure to check out the podcast version of this program at jumpstartgermantown.com media. Uh, but yeah, I'll, uh, I'll introduce Rodney here and we'll get started with the discussion. Um, Rodney, as I, I mentioned, is a, uh, has a broad array of real estate experience in the industry and he is one of the founding members of Limitless Real Estate, which is a sales and development team specializing in working with home buyers and sellers in the great, greater Philadelphia area. Um, he is a partner in AJR Endeavors, which is a partnership focused on the redevelopment and revitalization of 36 homes, row homes that were once involved or that were involved in the 1985 move bombing in West Philadelphia. Um, which is a, and this is surmised in the project called Osage Pines. Um, he has a, he has discovered his passion for real estate during his time at Drexel when he purchased his first investment property in 2009. And after becoming a realist, licensed real estate agent, he developed an intimate knowledge of how to make successful real estate investments, helping his clients make over a million dollars in estimated profits. Um, and he focuses on building a team of successful realtors at Keller Williams and organizes development projects and building his investment portfolio. So it's my pleasure to introduce him. Sorry, that was such a, a hectic intro there, <laughs> but it's good to see you tonight, Roddy. Thanks, you made me remember some stuff that I haven't thought of for a while. There you go, that's always what happens when I read the bio. People are like, oh yeah, I did do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Uh, like I said, we're gonna be talking about a project that you were involved in called Osage Pines. Um, the first thing I want to ask you, but you know, before we talk about that project in specific, uh, your bio said that you discovered your passion for real estate uh, during your time at Drexel when you were in college. Um, how did you discover that? What what was like your your opening into the real estate world for you? Yeah, like I was uh, telling you a little bit before we hit the record button. I uh, I I started Drexel for like engineering, so I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like I graduated high school in 07. Had no idea what I wanted to do. All I knew I was good at, uh, is that I was good at like math and science. So my dad went to Drexel, my brother went to Drexel. So I'm like, all right, I applied to Drexel and Temple and got in. But like by year two, <clears throat> I wasn't really feeling it because engineering classes are great and you know, but I wasn't really sure mm -hmm. if I wanted to keep paying. It's like it was, back then it was only like 33 a year, but that's a lot of money to pay for a five-year college, right? Now I think it's like 40, 50 a year. So basically my first co-op, I decided to do something different. I went to France, did a whole thing. Since that worked out and they allowed me to do that, even though I was an engineer, the second one around, 
I had moved in this house with a bunch of roommates on 35th street. So um, it was a house with, there were seven of us and my, my roommate, one of my good friends. So today, the guy who got me in real estate, his name's Matt. He was, he kind of opened my eyes because he was, mind you, like my mom's worked as like a receptionist most of her life and a little bit of schooling. And my dad's been a programmer. So I haven't really been exposed to like business entrepreneurship. And most of my family is also, they're also, you know, they work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I moved into this house and then like within a couple of weeks, basically my friend, he's like, he, he was two years ahead. He was studying business and, but he was selling houses in the meantime. So I, I, I asked him questions every day and I realized like he made more than both of my parents while he was a senior full-time student in school. And he happened to hook up with some investors. He was selling them houses and then they were flipping them and he was really sharp. So once I heard that, I was like, what? I didn't even really compute. And he gave me this book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So that's where it all started. I feel like Rich Dad, Poor Dad starts starts the momentum for a lot of people. So basically um, I'm like, I'm kind of a high risk, not high risk, but like ready, fire, aim kind of personality. So I like to jump into things. So I was working my first co-op as a surveyor for the city. So I would walk to the trolley, take it down to 65th and Woodland every day. And I read this book and then I immediately decided to quit my co-op job. That's how much like it was, it was so impactful. I'm like, this is crazy. Like I have to do this real estate thing right now. And I told my boss I was going to quit my co-op job. So I'd save up a little bit of money, like eight or $9,000, which I saved up through the co-op and borrowed from Drexel, mind you. (laughs) And I happened to, I started just talking to anyone I knew in my, basically the first, this first house that I bought back then my boss, since he figured out that I was serious about quitting, he actually put me in touch with a guy who we did a survey for who owned houses in Southwest Philly. And I just tried to put it together. I'm like, all right, well, cool. Maybe I can buy one of his little houses and that'll be that'll be the start of it. Long story short, uh, it didn't really work out so great. I did. He, he I basically gave him eight thousand dollars. He deeded me the house. I didn't get title insurance. I did a lot of things wrong. But the one thing I did right was I put it in LLC. So like nothing None of the back taxes or anything showed up in my name. And basically like the plan was the section eight tenant that was in there paying like seven ninety five. I was supposed to transfer that to me and it would be good. And his payments were like 500 bucks and, you know, it, it would start going. That never happened. I ran out of money. Like I spent like two grand trying to fix it up with my uncle. She stole everything. Like everything went wrong. The tenant ended up dying in the house. And then I was like, oh my God, mind you, I'm like 19. I didn't know what else to do. And I ended up giving the guy the house back and he gave me a thousand bucks, actually nine fifty. He, he, this guy is like such a crookster. He, gave, he took, a, he took away 50 bucks when I was giving the house, giving him the house back for transfer tax. But long story short, that's how I got started. And then I figured after I lost all that money, I, I'm, I was like, all right, let me take a step back. I'm going to try and do what my friend's doing, which is sell houses and learn, work with other people, learn from their mistakes and their successes. And then I can get back into investing once I save some money and like no more. So that's That's the long and short of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot. Um, from, from, like you said, your first, like into the opening door of of real estate, um, to, to that situation. That's a, that's a big first step. Um, what happened between, you know, then and when you got to work on the Osage Pines project, like, you know, where did you kind of go from there? Um, what, what, I guess what I'm really asking is what point of development were you at or what scale of development were you at prior to getting involved at Osage Pines or just prior to it? Mainly just single family and duplexes. Like after I graduated in 2013, I was selling houses, paying off student loans. I had bought 
like a couple places in 2014, 15 that I managed to like finagle myself into um, with no money down and sold those and paid out loans. But then I had just formed before we did the Osage Pine, I just formed my other partnership with my partner, Steph. And we had bought maybe like two places or three places, but it was all, I was the basic, hadn't done anything but a two bedroom or a three bedroom house in West Philly. And then that project happened to come around. Right. And and I I know uh, the Osage Pine project isn't technically commercial real estate development. You know, it's, they're all single family residential. I'm assuming they're all RSA zoned. Um, Like, like that's still a huge jump up (laughs) from like you said, like duplexes or or RSA homes to going, Oh, here's 36 homes we need to redevelop. Mm -hmm. Uh, That must've been sort of a, a shock to go, go between those two scales, huh? It was, and it's probably helpful like to explain a little bit of how that happened. So I, um, they're also in R1, by the way, but we were not allowed to make them into duplexes. I wish we could have, that would have been crazy. But so I think like the way I, that I wasn't necessarily going out and looking to develop 36 houses. I am pretty uh, like face-to-face with developing relationships. And I, I had, I've always wanted to invest and I had done some wholesaling and all that back before 2017. So I just happened to talk to two different people, which ended up being my two partners. But long story short, like I knew at some point I wanted to do larger developments. Mm-hmm. And it just I I it was it was a lot how it evolved was like a lot simpler than maybe a lot of people were thinking. Like I was just having one conversation. Like I had met this dude at the barber shop who introduced me to a guy. Uh, develop, uh, a builder who I sold two houses for. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, in the same time period, like this was 2017 or whatever, I had also talked to my other partner, uh, Jim, who I just had seen him around at networking events. He's a monster. He had done a lot of, a lot of investing. He's a couple years older than me. And we had tried to, so I figured, all right, uh, let's, uh, the, the first thing that came around was like a lot that it was an opportunity. It was like the, buying a lot from the city. We were supposed to build nine houses from in West, in West Philly. Mm-hmm. We had come together and like, this was the simplest. I figured I'm like, all right, well, my one partner like knows more about city politics and like the whole process. And this guy has access to a lot of money. So why don't I just, I mean, it was as simple as like, let's sit down in a conference room together and see if we can figure something out. And it was maybe about a five minute conversation. We're like, okay, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. We'll split it this way. And let's try and go after this lot. So that's how the partnership actually started. And um, we went out, we went after it. It didn't end up working out. But then a couple months later, that's when the, the, the RFP, the city puts out proposals uh, for certain stuff they want to sell. And that's how we came together a little bit before that. And the timing was just right. That's really what it was. Right. So now I, I want to talk about the state that these homes were in uh, when you, you first kind of encountered them. Yeah. Um, I know they had been redeveloped at least once since the, the 1985 bombing, correct? Yeah. So they obviously were bombed and burned down in 85. They rebuilt them through 87 and 88. And honestly, there was a lot less to think. I think the punchline is there was a lot less wrong with them than a lot of people thought. Some of the houses, the way it worked was like, I don't know everything about what happened in the past. There was a developer who did some crazy stuff and he ended up in jail. Maybe he stole some money and whatnot. The houses, most of, there was 30, or sorry, there were 60 something houses total that were rebuilt, like 65 or 66. A lot of them had minor issues, HVAC, electrical, plumbing and all that. And the city gave each owner um, back then who had their house rebuilt an option. Either you take a hundred something thousand dollars and you give us the house back and you go move and move on with your life. Or we can, you know, you stay here, we try and help you with the repairs. So half the people, those 36 people, um, 
36 people took the option and gave their houses back to the city. And that's how we ended up, you know, that, that's what ended up being a bit. But um, you wouldn't believe it. Like a lot of houses were actually in very livable shape. None of them had the big thing that everybody thought, which is why we got the project in the first place, was that, oh, my God, they're falling down. I don't know if you've heard any of these rumors, but I had so many people tell me in the year plus that we were under contract that they're falling down. They were and, not falling down. And people's suspicion of that came from just the fact that they were involved in, in such like but like there was so much trauma to that area or, or the structure of those buildings that people were like, you know, how could they possibly be intact? <laughs> that I don't know where it started, but like everyone, you know, so many, I'm, I wasn't even alive when it happened, but anyone I knew that was and remember what happened, I think it just, I don't want to say it's a rumor, but like, you know how word just gets around. And this is, it, I guess it's important. And I'm, I'm saying that because like, when they did the group showing for the for the city, there was like 55 groups there. Guess how many people made a bid? If you had to guess, 20. Two. Oh man. Us and one other group. Oh man. That's how bad the stigma was against them. Oh, so even- I should have never bought these places. This right. should have never happened. If if everybody would have per- seen this as like looked at it more like a normal development project, yes, there's political whatever involved, but like. There's no way we didn't. We weren't the most financially strong people or the best people. Experience. None of that mm-hmm. It was only because we made a bid and the other group made a bid and they liked us better. So that's that's how strong the stigma that the houses were falling over was that nobody else wanted to even bid. And what do you think we bid? Like, what, what do you think the price we bid was? The 36 row homes in West Philly? Yeah. Just a guess. Oh, man. 20 million? No. Six dollars. <laughs> we bid one dollar. <laughs> Man, it's Dude. because there was a lot of. We weren't really sure whether we were going to make money. It's like we figured they're like they're, all the houses are more than two thousand square feet. So a couple years ago, I mean, now West Bay's on fire, but we didn't know whether like we there was some did have structural issues, but because of roofs caving in, we didn't know whether we were going to like spend one fifty or spend one eighty and only sell it for two hundred or two twenty or two thirty. We weren't really sure. And so that's why we're like, all right, with knowing all that, plus the political risk, plus the what what if something crazy happens? It's not even what if someone tries to burn them down again? Like what all the things we thought we could go through. That's why we bid. It didn't it, it only made sense for us to take the project like with them just giving us the land because was, there was extra money outside of what we had to spend rehabbing the houses that we had to spend right. money putting back into the community, the art project, all sorts of other stuff. But the point is like we never if if more people had bid on this, we never would have gotten it. Mm-hmm. But we just kind of looked at it logically. And even I didn't even believe it at the beginning. I'm like, do we really want to do this? But mm-hmm. um honestly, I was probably the one convinced out of all the one that they had to convince out of all three of us to go for it. Mm-hmm. And we did. It sounds like the difference between you and the, those, you know, 50 some other people who, who toured the property was that you guys saw it as a good investment opportunity rather than the kind of the, the story or the rumor around town, right? You're, you kind of looked at it plain and simple as they were reading too much into what the word on the street was, right? Yeah, it was mostly that. And um, I mean, yeah, I guess it was mostly that. And like, I think that we ended up being a good group that like they, the city, uh, from what I believe, wanted somebody that could like relate to the people in the community and on the block and all that. And we just, we were able to show them like the track record between all of us. I didn't have a big track record, but my other partners did. So um, we were able to just basically show them like, Hey, we've done all these things. 
And I think just there was a lot of meetings we were under contract for like 13 months. So like this didn't happen quickly. They, first, they sat us down and asked us all these questions. Then we met them again. And then we showed them every other project under the sun that we're working under in different stages. And then they felt more comfortable. And then we showed them all the financials. And we had to raise money from a guy and, and show them bank statements. So like we went through a lot with a lot of what's similar to like uh, a commercial project, actually. Which yeah. So tell me about that process. Like w when you were talking with the community and, and when you said you had these meetings where you're just getting grilled with questions, um, like like yeah. what, what, what really were... You know, what do you, where do you think those people were coming from? Um, you know, I, I mean, obviously they, they care about their community and everything, but you know, what were you, what were you trying to, to prove to them? Like, like what were, what, what was both parties goals in that conversation, I guess, to prepare people, you know, who have really only done a, a, a row home, you know, they, not the whole neighborhood's not going to get into a zoom call for a, a, a single row home, you know, uh, in West Philly, but for a huge project like this, you know, it brings a lot more attention. So what, what should people focus on, uh, in, in that dialogue? Uh, like when talking to the community, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Like, like what's the goal of that, that what, what are you trying to convey? Like it's simpler than I thought. So it's really the simple, like number one, it's like, we're legit, okay? I, I, did, I was the one who had the least experience out of all three of us, but between us all, we had plenty of experience with rehabs and new construction of single family, multifamily. So number one is we're legit. Number two is we're actually gonna put a decent product there. And so we had to do the renderings and all that and show them exactly what we think the house is, some really nice renderings, some design blends. And we made a website and we did all this and we showed it to them, like these are what the house is gonna look like. So it's gonna be a lot better than what was there before. And number three is like, we had to show them that we're gonna at least put put the effort towards seeing if anyone in that community is able to buy first. It didn't end up working out that way, but like I, I we reached out to pretty much everyone around on those couple of blocks and their family and all that to see if we could get people financially ready to try and buy one and take most advantage of the project before we market it to anybody else. And that was also a requirement by the city, okay? Yeah. So it was mainly those three things um, and just talking with people, people, people wanted closure, I think is the biggest thing that I heard. They didn't want like the emotion. There was a lot of emotion to some of these meetings, like people crying, thinking about what happened in the, in the 30 years, they've been living on a blighted block that had, you know, that literally more than half the block was blighted. So I think a lot of people just really wanted to be heard. And if nothing it's nothing different than what, you know, just having a face-to-face -face conversation with somebody real that they actually can trust. And that's literally what it came down to, if that answers your question. Yeah, no, no, it does. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit more about like this in terms of uh, a larger project and how it's different from those smaller ones. Um, is this as simple as, as you know, 36 single family row home rehabs times, or, or sorry, one single family row home times 36 and that's like basically your budget is it as simple as that or was there more you know overall strategic um planning somebody in the chat just asked you know why wouldn't you consider this a, a commercial pro or yeah a commercial project and you know my, my answer would be that it's not zoned commercially but this sounds like it's it's at that scale where it's so big that it's not as simple as just you know copy and paste copy and paste for each unit you know yeah i guess you're right it it is like you said, I, I only think about it as residential because it's 36 houses, it's not an apartment building or a mixed use building or whatnot, but it's similar in a way like it's similar in a way to a building. First of all, the numbers are really big. Like it was a $7 million project, right? Total. 
At least that's what the total sales volume of all that. It was more than that, but somewhere around there. Yeah, and when people and, when people hear that seven million dollar, they're thinking like a huge high rise. Um, well, they are, but let me let me. I think hearing some numbers might demonstrate this. So, like when you buy it, I'm sure most people on here have probably bought houses or you're teaching them how to. Generally, I think like if you're buying a house for fifty grand and you're going to rehab it for fifty grand and it's going to be worth one fifty, one eighty, whatever it is, you probably need about a. Th- very generally, you probably need about a third of the whole project cost, right? That's what I usually benchmark. So if you're, you know, you're probably going to need 50, 40, 50 grand, whatever it is. It's kind of similar for a commercial project, except the number is bigger. So like the total amount, let's just estimate it was 200 grand a house. It was a little bit less than that, but times 36 houses. Um, So yeah, six something million dollars. In this case, since the purchase price was lower, like this is how we kind of broke it down. Since the purchase price Normally, we might pay 20, 30, 50 grand per shell, right? So the purchase price, price might be what's 50,000 times 30, 1.5, right? So normally it might be like 1.5 purchase and like 5 million rehab, and then it's worth whatever. But the purchase price was lower here. So we didn't have to like raise as much. We didn't need as much money up front, but we had to treat it uh, in the same way like you do an apartment building. You have a huge amount of costs. And then somewhere in the middle of the project, you start recouping it. And then towards the very end, like your last, if you're doing a, a development, you're like your last 15, 20% of sales is where your profit is. Right. So we didn't have all the money. So um, what we between all of us, we put in like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. And then we had one guy who put in like 1.2 million, uh, just a guy who I didn't know him, one of my partners knew him. And then we had a line, we had a revolving line that was just, uh, leaned against everything for like 700 ish. Okay. So between all that, we had about $2 million to work with. Right. All right. And that got us through the way we like broke it out was we split it into two parts. Cause there was two blocks. There was set, uh, 19 on the first block, 17 on the second block. So with that upfront money, we basically ran through, we, uh, we got, we closed up all we demoed, and got all the windows and doors and all that in for the first 19 houses, which probably costs, let's say, half a million dollars. And then we finished them four at a time. Gotcha. So, and and, and then that's how we kind of like pace. So we didn't have to spend all the money up front. We were able to make sure we had sales volume, right. finish four and then get them under contract. And then the right. next four already roughed in, but let's finish them up. And then literally yeah. that's what we did. Yeah, and that's different than an apartment building where you would, you know, have the entire all units ready at once to go hit hit the market at one time and kind of market as this new, you know, apartment building, right? Exactly. Like you, yeah, you have a lot more. You pretty much have to spend almost everything before you're able to start recouping or refinance or whatever. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with Rodney Ross, one of the partners behind the Osage Pine Project, which focused on the redevelopment and revitalization of 36 row homes involved in the 1985 move bombing in West Philly. Thanks for listening to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show on Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. I hope you're enjoying the discussion. So, and how about like, um, for, for like the labor and materials side of things, were you using the same, you know, contractors for every house or was there, you know, discussion about, you know, where that labor comes from or, or the material? Yeah. Is it helpful to kind of have like a, a rollover of, you know, you finished. Oh my God. You got the next- I'm telling you, by the time we were like, I kind of gained some confidence by the time we had like closed on this and we're rehabbing it. And I probably bought like six or seven houses and um, duplexes. 
And I had like three or four rehabs going on separately. This whole project was easier than all of those. Like each, the you know, the framer, you get more loyalty when guys are working for, we, we, we had to switch a couple of times. We, we moved through maybe like one, the first electrician didn't work out for the whole project. The first plumber didn't work out for the whole project. The framers pretty much worked out for the whole project, but like they were working for like almost two years. So yeah, instead of paying a framing guy 15 grand, uh, you know, frame a triplex, that, that whole crew made like $500,000. So it was a lot easier calling guys back, keeping them accountable. Like, just like you said, it's, it's not complicated. It's just, you, you meet every week, you figure out where we're at. Okay, cool. This is what I owe you. All right. What are we going to do next week? All right, cool. And I'm going to owe you how much next week? All right, great. And I'll see you next week. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense that once you scale things up, it's like, there's this consistency that, that comes with it that, that makes certain things you would think about that, that were so hard when you're doing it on an individual level um, that just get cleared up like that. That's cool to hear. Yeah. Um, so, so my next question is, is about, I guess, your, your time at working on Osage Pine moving forward, um, like how it prepared you for, for larger scale things. Um, mm-hmm. What was something that, that you, you experienced while, while, you know, in that development process of Osage Pine that you're like, oh man, this helped me for my next three projects after. Like that was something that I had no clue about before that, you know, that was really the only way I was going to learn it. Um, so so what, what's one thing that, that you, you know, you, what, what would you say you grew from uh, through that experience? And I'm just going to grab my charger. I, I'm listening, but I just got to grab my charger. For sure. So there's a couple of things. Uh, uh, the, the first one that comes to mind is that these big projects and all that, it's not as complicated as, as I thought when uh, as long as you're prepared so like i had this image of like what raising money was like i thought that you um set up a meeting and like put on a suit and like do an excel spreadsheet and print it out and like put up a power there was none of that our whole agreement like the gentleman that lent us the money and we kind of became call him a fourth partner on the project like it wasn't i i was literally laughing during this meeting like we met at a diner or whatever coffee shop on South street. And he printed out a single piece of paper and put it down on the table. And now there's agreement. It was like four sentences that were in really big font because you know, that's what he needed. He's older. So (laughs) it's, it's crazy. Like it, it wasn't as complicated as I thought. I think the, and from what I've learned, like since that, first of all, like it was a confidence thing of just like, it's not as hard as you think, as long as, again, as long as you're prepared, and I've spent a lot of years like crunching numbers and learning about construction and figuring out what the real costs are and figuring out what the risks are and figuring out what stuff's really going to sell for and rent for. As long as like you do your preparation, uh, when something comes at you, it can come together a lot quicker than you thought. So like that was number one. And then um, what lenders look for, because like some of the lenders or the lender that we used in that project, I borrowed a lot of other money from, like probably another million dollars over across some other projects what lenders look for whether it's hard money lenders private lenders refinance lenders partners whatever they like the resourcefulness and the being able to get a project from a to z that's what's most important to them i i always thought it was like what your credit was and you know how much money you have in the bank and those things are important but it's not it's definitely not everything like my credit has sucked most of my life and been like 600 or less until very recently so it's not, it, it doesn't have that much to do with your credit is number two. And I think number three is like, you can get creative, which I'll tell you one quick story. Like when we first figure out this, um, our partnership agreement, 
I had a lot of student loan. Well, I had some student loan debt still that was like, that was um, behind. So I was able to like figure out the, uh, one of the things that the gentleman who we raised the money from was important to him was like, he wanted to, he was open to like buying more partnership from one of us, for, from us. So like I took a piece of my partnership, like think about if you're going to make a hundred thousand dollars over the course of a project, but it's going to take you two years. Mm-hmm. If you can discount it and sell a p- piece of your partnership and take money now, you'll take less. Yeah. But if you get you know what I'm saying, you can, I discounted it and took a little bit less. I sold him a piece of my partnership, mm-hmm. took that money, negotiated my student loans down less, mm-hmm. paid them off. My credit jumped. And then I bought a duplex with that money. Mm-hmm. So if everybody follows that, like basically I left, uh, who knows how much $30,000 on the table, but that $30,000 allowed me to pay off my negotiate money off my loan. So I saved like 17 grand there. And then I bought a duplex, which I actually just got appraised today for a refinance. I bought that place for like 130, put 25 into it. I ended up adding a unit and putting 50 more, but it's probably worth like 340 right now. So kind of was able to like build equity and do other stuff with that. So you can get creative. And I didn't have, I didn't have a lot of money when I was doing any of this, but you can get creative and figure things out. Yeah. I like that idea that getting creative because i think that that is one of the differences like when you're you're working more on the back end of like thinking about all your projects in, in one you know big chessboard um rather than you know when you're first starting and it's your first project and you're like focused on how am i going to get the drywall <laughs> um it's yeah. like, like i i guess w- w- it wouldn't make uh it's kind of weird how once things get more complex and you're doing all these projects like it comes easier to solve your financial problems a little bit um even though you're you're working harder right um yeah i like getting sometimes. creative yeah sometimes yeah. it can um, it definitely can okay, feel yeah, overwhelming uh, sometimes but you know oh sorry i think my my, my camera froze you there yeah yeah you froze for a second but just saying it can feel overwhelming at times and like it didn't i didn't come to how to figure that out like just on day one and like i've been reading about people doing creative stuff for a long time mm-hmm. but i i'm, I'm just, i just learned how to be like resourceful and i recognize that opportunity as soon as you said that i was like Oh shoot! If I do this and then pull it and pay that and then do that and like just work on the puzzle pieces, and cool. that definitely worked out. And that's something that you can only do with with bigger projects. You can't do that with like one single family rehab. Um, you could, but the numbers would just be a lot smaller. Right, 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 right. Um, okay, uh, so just a little bit more moving on from Osage Pine. Um, you know, what what were your next couple projects? Uh, what what are you doing now? Um, have you moved away from residential rehabs, or, or are you doing commercial development? We are just like literally like starting that right now. I don't want to buy any more houses right now. I love buying houses. They're great. I'm finishing up a couple. We're finishing up a couple triplexes, a duplex, a couple houses right now. Um, But I'm selling off some things. Like we have two listed. We have one more coming up. Actually, two more coming up. And then we're moving on to like, so I bought my first lot. I haven't built anything yet. So we're Mm -hmm. building our first, um, it'll either be eight, most likely eight units um, in West Philly. And just looking for bigger stuff. It's kind of hard to find because the construction costs are so high these days. The land costs are so high. Like even if you, I did a performer today. It's like, even though we kind of got the, we bought this land for so cheap, it's almost free. It's like the numbers still almost don't work, which right. is crazy. Right. Right. But that's what we're working on. Like, I know it's going to be a long road and it's stepping way out of what we're comfortable with. But um, I think it's just, we need to do it's taking a step back to take a couple steps forward because when you when you hit a double or a triple 
doing a 20 unit, you know, you won't make three or 400 bucks a month. You might make three or $4,000 a month or 2000 or whatever, but it only takes a, a hand, a couple handfuls of those as opposed to like having to own. We, I just did this like this week. We're like, we have to own a hundred houses to be able to, because houses don't actually make as much cash flow as you think they do. When you look them over over a long term, every three or four years, some something happens. Mm-hmm. Your roof goes and your hot water heater goes with something, and then all of a sudden you spend four grand. Right. And then there's your profit. Right. So, <laughs> right. so that's what e- we're doing. Easier to have less of those roofs to fix, right? <laughs> but yeah. and more per per each one. Mm-hmm. Um Cool. Um, I, I got one more question here, uh, but before I ask it, I just want to remind everybody that we're going to do a, a brief Q and A session here in a couple minutes. Um, you can do, or you can type questions for Rodney in the Q and A uh, box here. Just go ahead and type them in, and I'll ask them to him in a few minutes. Um, I see there's a couple there, so thank you guys. Um, the last question I want to ask you, Rodney, is just uh, sort sort of just pointing to your advice uh, to people on the call right now. Um, for people who are looking for opportunities such as Osage Pine or like, you know, these kind of unique uh, introductory uh, larger scale projects that, that they can get involved in. Um, it sounded like your, your strategy was just to look at what the city was selling and, and make a bid and, and, you know, just go for it. Um, but do you have suggestions of where, you know, people should look or, or where they should keep their eye out to, to seek out these opportunities? Um, and I guess, yeah, I'll let you have one, one follow up question after that. So, Sort of not really like we weren't looking for this project. We really weren't. It came. We just one of us was on the the email list for the city. And that's how we heard about it. So I think I like the, I think focusing on being ready and really being ready, like really, really being ready and having every, all, everything lined up and all your relationships and all that. And then just I don't know anything other than like want you know one on i'm i generally like to like one-on-one with his phone calls or in person or whatever like just if you're looking for bigger projects then like find some commercial realtors and find a way to actually like add value to them and not and have them want to take your phone call you know yeah. that's what i focused on it sounds really airy fairy but like i think just learning how to have uh, conversations like the right way where someone is actually going to want to take your phone call. I'm like, you're not calling them and asking for something all the time. And I think asking, asking intelligent questions is so, so underrated. Yeah. Like people, I think you can gain respect with people based on the questions that you ask. And like, I don't like to ask questions without like doing research on something first. So I'll never just ask a blanket question. Like, how do I do this? And if someone, for example, this is just an example, right? If you want to find commercial deals, get on a list with from, from a commercial realtor that's selling them. And then when they send you stuff, say they send you, I don't know, a hundred unit building and it doesn't make sense because of X, Y, Z. Look through what they send you and figure out and, and figure out, all right, well, uh, because the rents aren't high enough or because the expenses are too high, the numbers don't work. And if you ask them, you could reply and just ask them like, hey, based on, I noticed that the rent number is here and da, 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 da. Like, why do you think these numbers are so high? If it was this, it might work for me. Do you have anything else that might work? You, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't like, even even when you know it's not going to work, you can still like, get gain value from that exchange, right? Yeah, and they'll tell you. Like, and you can tell them, hey, like, I think at this number, this would make sense for me. Um, yeah. Do you have anything else that might be closer to an eight and a half cap yeah. in your inventory? Yeah. Nobody does that. People just don't respond and don't give feedback on why stuff doesn't work for them. 
No, I, I like that answer. It's, it sounds like positioning is what's important, is making yourself, you know, I, I think you said be ready. Um, they'll, be ready. Like, when the deal comes to you, you know, you, you don't really got to do any looking. You're just ready there to accept it, right? Well, you cool. got to talk to a lot of people too. Just tell everybody where you're doing. That's the, that's the other side. Cool. All right. Um, I think that wraps it up for what I have to ask you. So uh, I, we'll move on to the, the live questions here. But I just want to say thank you, Rodney. I appreciate the, you taking the time to talk with us tonight. Sure. Uh, our first question yeah, first question is going to come from Keith. And he is wondering, why couldn't you make uh, the Osage Pine uh, units duplexes? Because you mentioned they were RM1, right? Mm-hmm. It was our agreement with the city. Okay, gotcha. The whole part of the project and us getting it for the price was not to make them duplexes. It was to make them houses. Right. Um, so the next question comes from Deirdre, and they're wondering, I apologize if you addressed this, but did the Osage Pine project and your development company, or but with the project, how much experience did you have prior to bidding on the 36 properties? Also, to what extent were you able to evaluate the properties before buying? So uh, I think you touched on both of those. Maybe if you just want to recap, um, you know, like what your process, uh, the bidding process was. Yeah, I didn't have a lot of experience. I had bought a couple places. My other partners had more experience than I did, and that's why we brought them in, and that's how the partnership worked out. We only looked at four or five out of the 36, and then dur- before we made the offer, right? During the due diligence and all that that they gave us, then we were able to pay for engineers to go through to make sure there was no structural issues, but I only saw four or five of them, and that was it. Gotcha. Um, next question comes from Brandon. They're wondering, is raw land house development more complicated than a full house rehab? So do you have experience with raw house development? Raw, uh, raw? Look, I haven't done it myself, but I've, I, I, I don't want to say I have personal experience. I've worked with lots of developers. And mm-hmm. I think land is easier in a way because you're starting with nothing. When you do a house, we're talking about single family house rehab. If you're totally gutting it, it's usually pretty similar to a um, new construction. It can be easier because in a city like Philly, for example, like you can get an easy permit and do it much quicker. But uh, if you're trying to cut like a duplex or a triplex or a bigger building, I think it, I think a rehab can be more complicated. Land, building a house from scratch just takes longer. It's not much more complicated. It just takes longer. Cool. And that's something we, we have, haven't really talked about ever here is, is new construction. Um, so maybe, you know, after commercial real estate, we can dive into that. Uh, thanks, Brandon. The next question comes from Rich. And he's wondering, how many times did you have to assemble your team? What was the approach to keep them around from the beginning to the end of the project? So I know you mentioned your three partners, that, and I'm assuming it's AJ and R is Rodney, your initials, right? Um, oh, man. I didn't realize it started thunderstorming. <laughs> I just heard it too. Um, anyway, uh, so what was your team uh, or team assembly process like? Uh, it, it sounds like you stuck through the whole project, but um, mm-hmm. what about other members of your team? You know, did you did you switch any any positions around or? No, like again, the team assembly part. Uh, it it like we literally just sat down on the conference room table. It really was that. It's like okay, well, what what's everything that needs to be done? Cool. I'll sell all the houses. You'll handle most of the finances, the accounting. You'll handle most of the construction management. Does that work for you? Okay, great. I'll take this much. You'll take this much. You'll take this much. We could have been better at it. Let me, let me put that up front. We had challenges in the middle of the project, but nothing too crazy enough that really like hindered it. So I think the better, what I'd also like to say on that point is how I think about how it only happened that easily, I think, because when I talk to people, generally, I try and think about, like, where is this person at? 
What do they need right now? What do I think that they'd be good at? And so I kind of keep mental tabs on that um, for most people that I meet. And and uh, that's kind of what I did there. And that's why I think that the whole meeting was pretty easy because we all needed each other for different reasons. Yeah, great. If that makes any sense. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, you know, probably where some problems come up is when you get too too detailed about that and you write like 30 pages about what everybody's going to be doing and then, you know, that, that doesn't work and it's like a hell of a lot more to change it than, than it would be to just, you know. Yeah. Let me just end up with an example. Like most partnerships, I feel like, is somebody has the money and somebody has all the time in the world and not money and they're able to like find products and everything. So you just have to figure out what are all what are all the things that need to happen from start to finish? I need to network with lenders and all that and contractors. I need help finding the deals and then project management. So like usually the person without the money say, hey, I'll take a third of the project and you take two thirds of the project person with the money and I'll do everything. I'll find the thing. I'll I'll handle the process with like getting the hard money lender together. You're going to put up your credit and the money and then we're going to buy the place and I'll manage it and I'll take a little share and you'll take most of the share because you're taking the risk. Like that's what the way I think most of the time responsibilities end up sharing out but don't overcomplicate it right okay um the next question comes from buff and i i, I don't know if we touched on this but what is the uh, average price that the house is sold for in the osage pine project yeah the first um part was we started at 249 uh, actually maybe like 239 or 235 or something for the first couple but it was in the 240s and 250s and the second half ended up being high 250s some of them were in the 260s and then the garage ones were 280s Okay. And what's that like uh, in comparison to, to surrounding properties? Is that like market value? Pretty much. It, we did set a bar, but it wasn't really that much higher than the bar, like the, the dollar, oh, let me call it the dollar per square foot in the area. Like there weren't a lot of houses that were 2000 square foot around there. There was a lot of houses that was, and this is again, part of, this is actually part of our due diligence with the city because they wanted to make sure that we were actually going to be able to like get through this. Yeah. So I had to print all the comps and all that and go over them with them and show them it's like all right cool there's a 1500 square foot house that sold for 180. Mm -hmm. that means a 2400 square foot house could probably sell for like mid twos just mm -hmm. if you do the math so that's kind of how it worked out cool uh next question comes from z and then she's wondering or they are wondering what are some examples of failure you experienced and what bounce back strategies did you employ that's a good question. What, um, you know, was there anything that, that really went terribly wrong in the middle of the, the project and, and you came back from it? I don't know if I would say terribly wrong, but I mean, there's always, there was always challenges with the construction, like having framers paying them per day instead of really like having them go in for, the, for some of the houses, having them go in, give us the price to reframe everything and then stick to that. So mm -hmm. we overspent on some of that. Um, some paying guys a little bit too much money so we got ahead of them you know mm -hmm. so that they they had been paid for work they hadn't done yet um right. and other than that just not delegating stuff like once it got into the middle sometimes our superintendent was reporting to like all three of us right. on the same thing and that's a problem it's like not sustainable so when there was issues or we had sold somebody something and there's a punch list that needs to be taken out like the homeowner sometimes had two of our phone numbers or three of our phone numbers. So that gets real confusing real fast. Right. Okay, cool. Uh, next question comes from Buff and they're wondering, is there a per square foot new construction cost uh, that you can quote for those projects 
Um, you know, an estimation is fine, but what, 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 on average, what was the, the construction amount for these projects or for these houses? I think generally, on the, it's crazy to say this, on the low end, I feel like you're at 140 or 150 a square foot and it, can, it just goes up from there. So yeah. if you work your math backwards, like if you're building in an area that you're getting rents that are like 1100, 1200, 1300, like unless you're doing a lot of units and getting your land for cheap, mm-hmm. you, it, the numbers just are hard to pencil out. Sure. And that concludes my discussion with Rodney Ross, one of the partners behind the Osage Pine Project, focusing on the redevelopment and revitalization of 36 row homes involved in the 1985 move bombing in West Philly. The interviews on this program are recorded during Jumpstart Germantown's weekly Jump in Our series, which take place via Zoom webinar every Monday night at 7 p.m. And if you'd like to participate in the live Q&A with our guest, be sure to head to jumpstartgermantown.com slash events and register for next week's Jump in Our. And if you're interested in starting a Jumpstart program in your own community, visit gojumpstart.org and see our how-to guide and open source training workbook. Thanks so much for listening to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show on Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. Be sure to tune in next week.